Hello, and welcome to another episode of In Conversation. I'm your host, Pat King. On today's episode, I spoke with Eric Garlington of the band Proper. The three-piece rock band released their third album, The Great American Novel, last March on Father Daughter Records. The Bardi's Strange produced album is their most ambitious to date, melding elements of punk, early aughts emo, as well as prog and new metal. With a rich and fluid narrative that pieces each song together, Garlington has described the record as a quote, a concept album about how black genius, specifically my own, goes ignored, is relentlessly contested, or just gets completely snuffed out before it can flourish. As someone who equates their songwriting process to writing episodic drama, the great American novel is a grand statement for Garlington. It's a coming-of-age story for a young black queer person navigating life in the 2010s with thunderous performances from the band underneath its detailed story. I caught up with Garlington before Proper's tour with Los Campesinos to find out the inspiration behind the album's concept, the importance of living an artistic life, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. You can hear me all right. You can see me. Where am I? There I am. Top corner. Yeah. How, um, can you hear me as well? I, I yeah. Have, yeah. I think we have the same headphones. Oh, shit. Yeah. Do, you do, have, yeah, do you have the uh, the focus right? The scar? Yeah. yeah. I bought the uh, the whole shebang, the 212, uh, where it's like the interface, the microphone also at the same one. Yep. Whole yeah. Whole thing. Is it, yeah. is it this one? Yeah. Yeah. It's probably <laughs> the exact same one. I got it in lockdown like two years ago and I was just like this is my setup and now but my desktop is too old to where it won't let me uh use GarageBand anymore so I have to use oh no uh, yeah so now I have to find some way around it but yeah normally I would have my mic set up also but uh curveballs you know yeah for sure for sure yeah I mean it's it's pretty great like I I do it I I use it for this of course but I but Mm -hmm. I also use it for um you know making music and stuff like that like it's yeah it's pretty good yeah, I actually demoed out our whole record on the Focusrite and GarageBand. I was like, this is good. I don't know, like, <laughs> obviously there are like more detailed mics and stuff. I was like, for this price point, this is great. Like as a beginner, I really like it. So shouts, I guess for now we're just going to shill for Focusrite. For yeah, yeah, right. Next right exactly. But, you know, <laughs> 40, 45 minutes to an hour straight, you know, we'll be set for yeah. life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how's it going? Uh, pretty good. We just got back from Europe about five days ago. So just kind of getting our sleep schedules back to normal. Um, I'm in New York. Our fill-in is in Tennessee. And then Elijah, the drummer, is in Seattle. So all of our sleep schedules are wildly just messed up. But we're all slowly getting back to normal. And then I leave for Canada tomorrow, day, day after tomorrow for Pooja Fest. So just going right back in into it. But oh, pretty yeah. good. Trying to stay sane. Nice. I mean, was that, were the dates overseas? Was that with uh, Los Campesinos as well, or? Uh, that's the one that's coming up. Oh, right. Uh, okay. In August. So this one was, uh, this is actually from our last album cycle. So this was supposed to happen like April of 2020. And, you know, COVID <laughs> told us no. So we finally did that tour. And that was about five weeks. So two weeks in the UK, three weeks in mainland Europe. And uh, 
I'm just glad it finally happened. We we're all just like every six months being like, okay, we should just cancel it, right? I'm like, no, it'll finally happen this time. And it finally <laughs> happened. So feeling good. Yeah. I mean, with the way you write, that must be interesting because, you know, having to do basically promote two records in the in the same tour. Yeah. Um, and, and with the way you write, you write so conceptually. It, it seems like that each record is its own thing and, and yeah. kind of in conversation with itself. Yeah. Um. I guess, how do you approach that? I know, I know <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you later in the interview, perhaps, but um, on your Twitter bio, you kind of refer to the band as being a prog band. I yeah. mean, do you, but, but do you, do you kind of present the material live in that way? Like, do you kind of, you know, um, conceptually present each record or do you kind of, is it strange to kind of mix everything? So uh, there was definitely like, now that we're a band that has 50 plus songs, there's definitely like, <laughs> like a, a, a moment of like picking and choosing and, and just like the realization that we really have no space to play anything off of our first record. So that made it a little easier. And then um, it's like sequencing an album, getting your set to flow well, uh, especially for a headlining set where you're playing like 45 minutes to an hour. It's like, how do we make sure that playing 15 songs does not get boring at any point? So we definitely had a challenge there, especially since... I don't think this album is drastically different, but the songs that are different are pretty different. And uh, finding, picking and choosing what makes the most sense is just like the big challenge. So we play probably 70% off of the new record and the rest is uh, LP2 and then our loose singles, so like Don't, Aficionado. And it was kind of just like, as much as I would want to play certain songs, it just didn't make sense. Um, so we kind of catered it around the focus is the new album. And we'll kind of be like, we're supposed to the joke on the tours. We're supposed to do this tour two years ago. So here's a block of songs from the last record. But then we would still have other songs from that album sprinkled in. And just making it flow was kind of a thing where we would just kind of try to make it make sense. Then after the set, a lot of people come up and be like, there were so many different sounds in that one hour long set. And it flowed really well. So it was just kind of being like, thank you for noticing. We're just going to try and not bring it up. <laughs> and hope that it, it makes sense to people because we would play done talking which doesn't sound like anything else that we have and then we would play like aficionado which is like pretty soft song in the same 30 minutes and i think it worked out well but our, our game plan was just to not bring attention to it <laughs> yeah or or a song i imagine like mcconnell or something like that which is so yeah you know which we we practiced but then we uh we backed out of playing live uh, oh we yeah need some more time yeah but we definitely were like oh yeah we'll do mcconnell and then we then the question was where and then it became like i don't know if my voice can handle that for five straight weeks and then we just kind of we're gonna save it for those camp tour i think is the plan nice nice oh that that's amazing but i i guess you know I, I guess maybe that's kind of the benefit of of releasing music during the pandemic is now that everything is back open, you just kind of have like 30 songs, like 30 brand new songs that you can play yeah. live. Yeah. It's, um, which is, you know, when you're in like lockdown writing stuff, you don't think about that. Cause you're like, okay, we're not gonna, we really didn't think we would ever be playing a show again after like five times of pushing back shows and tours. So we were just like, okay, cool. Album's 15 tracks long. All of our loose singles were like, there are four or five of them. So it's like almost 20 new songs. And it was just like, okay, who cares? Like, and now it's like, people are like, oh, I wish you had played Zuko alone. Or I wish you had played Chuck and Jive. And it's just like, oh yeah, we have like 
a small catalog now that people want to pick and choose from. And it's really hard to juggle, but it's also fun. It's reinvigorating after all this time off, you know? Yeah. Can, can you tell me about recording the album? I, it's so good. Um, Thank you. Yeah. The Thank great you. American novel. Thank you. Um, yeah. So in November, 2020, I guess so late summer, 2020, um, BSM was just like, Hey, do you, are you going to like write any records soon? And um, the whole joke is that I, that I don't really write things unless like my back is against the corner and the labels are begging me and my bandmates are begging me and everyone else on the team is just like, seriously though, like what is the plan? So kind of like we started talking to father, daughter and a couple of other labels. And we were just like, okay, so it has to be real then if we're like for real talking to labels. Cause they would be like, well, what are you working on? And it's in them don't and aficionado. And then I realized like, well, I know I don't want the next record to sound like these songs. So then I wrote, I want to say you good. I think the very first song on the album and started shopping down the round. They were like, okay, so you're going to go for like a heavier type of sound. And we kind of started pre-tracking that out. And then we signed with Father Daughter and then it was like for real go time. Like we got the advance. Um, I remember it was like October, I think. And I called Bartiz and or I texted Bartiz. They're like, hey, I think we're going to do our next record. We really would love to record with you. And this man was like in his car and he pulled over on the side of the road to call me back because he was so excited about it. And uh, we locked that in immediately <laughs> uh, with no with no like release date plan. He was just like, yeah, here are the dates I have open. And then February 2021, we finally got in the studio with him um, after like November. We, tr- we pre-tracked it all out. I uh, made all these demos on GarageBand. And then our drummer moved to Seattle or he moved to Denver. And then he moved to Seattle. So we were like back against the wall, had to get these songs written before he left. So about three weeks in November, we wrote the whole record. And then we were just like, okay, let's record this thing ASAP, put it out ASAP. And of course, COVID told us to have a seat. Uh, so we recorded it finally in February and it was like six and a half, seven days at Bartiza's studio in Church Falls, Virginia. And we, we knocked it out. Um, and then we, of course, we were like, okay, well, let's, let's set it for a summer release. And like, that didn't happen. So a whole year goes by <laughs> and then it finally comes out March of this year, but the process mostly was just like, it's our first time not going with, um, like our DIY punk kind of, uh, ethos and being like on a label that's like, no, no, we have like a team. Let's plan it out. Let's take our time. So like in me fashion, we wrote it quickly, we recorded it quickly. And then we had to kind of like wait and just like take a breath and get all the behind the scenes stuff done, new promo pics, music videos. But recording with Bart was great. It was the first time where I felt like I really got, someone really got the scope of what I was writing and then helped me actually actualize it. Cause I'm really bad about, like I've had the same guitar, same pedals, same amp even for like 10, 15 years. So I'm really bad about like getting outside of my comfort zone. So with Bartiz, he was just like, what if we did this? And I'd be like, I don't know. And like, just trust me. And I'd be like, oh, I hear it now. So there's a lot of moments like that. A lot of us like being like, man, we're just going to swing for the fences. And then we actually had that feeling that we actually like, it went over the fence and that the sound is where we want it for the first time. So a lot of first and a lot of trust that we're not used to uh, in a good way. Yeah, it's it's funny. I talked to um, Elise of Oceanator, who also recorded uh, yeah. with, with Bartiz. And, and mm-hmm. um, she was kind of talking about how he's very good at that about mm-hmm. just kind of like, I don't want to say there just, I guess not having an element of like pretension, you know, mm-hmm. with it, and, and just yeah. kind of breaking down the barriers of like 
while we're here, we're just going to go big and try everything. Exactly. Is, is that, yeah. is that something, do you find yourself kind of apprehensive when you get into the studio or had you in the past? I, I notoriously hate being in the studio. I, uh, <laughs> I'm very much like I have an ADB plan and anything that throws me off of the plan, just like, I just can't hang. I don't know why I just, the studio should be a time for like imp improvisation and idea building but I've always just been like no this is how it needs to be and then we tend to run out of money and so that adds to the stress so this is the first time we had the budget that we asked for and we had the time that we needed and I've known Bartiz now for like God, five six years a long time I've known Bartiz for a long time and this man showed up with a notebook in hand with his notes and thoughts already written out and like I had sent them the garage band demo so he'd listened to the songs for like two three months like he just showed up prepared which is not something that we're used to. So like from the jump, it was already just like, all right, this is a very laid back, good time. He already knows the songs and it's not just like the engineers hearing the songs for the first time as we're recording them. So it was already like, he's just prepared. He came up listening to the same type of bands, which was the first for us. And it just really showed in the studio. He was just like, I get what you're like, what you're going for. Like, this is like a me without you kind of part. I have these pedals, you should give him a shot. And like every thought that he had just like clicked and made sense immediately. Right, right. And, and you can totally hear that. I mean, I, I feel like there's so much layering going on and, and mm -hmm. really moments that, like you're saying, you know, really build for impact. Um, yeah. In terms of like the sequencing on the record, um, you, were, you were talking about how like you write in spurts, you write mm -hmm. with, with a lot of pressure. Yeah. I, I guess how with, with an album that flows so, I guess, naturally and seamlessly, narratively, like how... Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I guess how did you, like when you kind of write in this flurry, like how can you understand the larger concept as it's coming out? Is it, it do you kind of write in in kind of, um, like does it all come out in a matter of days or, or mm -hmm. do you kind of, does it gestate for a while? Um, so for me, I've actually like got this like process down pat that I've been doing now for like the last I guess decade, I've been playing guitar and writing songs for like 19 years. So about the last 10 years, I've realized like to approach it like a screenwriter writing a season of television. So my, my like pre pre tracking is me getting, it's like a one through, so this one was one through 15. And then I was just like, instead of a song name, it's like what I want it to be about. And that way I can immediately get that like narrative flow figured out first. And then second, it's always I go through my phone and look and listen to all the demos that I've amassed. Because since I don't write spontaneously, I'll have an idea, but then I'll just like write down the lyric or I will record the guitar riff. So like things like Gene, that guitar riff was like from the last writing session and the last album. And I just, for whatever reason, never turned it into anything. So it's very much like a screenwriter's art where it's like, all right, I got this. And then what music would make the most sense in the flow? So then I then match up the, like the riff that I had for red, white, and blue, I then matched that up to be at that part where it's like, that makes sense thematically to be there. And it's kind of like, it feels very mechanical. Like I always joke that I don't feel like an artist, I feel like an engineer. And it's just like, <laughs> which is like, to obviously it works for us, but like to a fault where I'm just like, people are like, oh, what like big swell of inspiration did you have? And I was like, I picked out this lyric and I picked out this instrumental and then I put them together. And it's kind of a, a process that like works for me, but it feels very, like unins uninspiring when I say it out loud, but that's kind of how it works. And then like, so I've written stuff like Barbershop, Interlude, and You Good were the first songs. So I was like, okay, 
that makes sense. And then I dipped all the way back to this old prog rock album idea I had when I was 20. And that's where Mikado comes from. That's where Chuck and Jive comes from. Uh, you, uh, Done Talking comes from that. And I just like knew I wanted to be more heavyish or progish, whatever you want to call it. And it was kind of just picking, choosing, putting everything in this order. And then I would come to Elijah uh, and be like, all right, let's get the instrumental part down. Uh, and then afterwards we sent it to Tosh. She's more of a like, listen to it and tinker on her own at home. And then she sends it back to us and then we kind of tweak it. And kind of, we did that over the course of three weeks. Right. And, but I guess with like knowing that and knowing that process, mm -hmm. um, do you kind of come up with the title, the great American novel, which mm -hmm. I, I guess like the overarching concept of the record is kind of like, you know, the pilfering or, or the um, diminishing of, of black influence as it's kind of mm -hmm. co-opted by, you know, white people in mainstream forms of art mm -hmm. um I, I guess did you kind of come up with the meaning behind that title before writing the material on the record or did it kind of present itself later i uh it's the same thing where i get like the the flow chart of like what the narrative is going to be i always have the title first so and then i kind of fill in the blanks to make the songs work for the title um because on the last record on the final song i have a line about we're all just writing our own great american novel and as I wrote that, I was like, man, that would be a great like song name. And then like, I, I was just like, that should be an album name. Yeah. And then I Googled to, to, to make sure continued. it wasn't taken. Yeah. <laughs> so especially like, I love like, I just love lore. So like on the first record, there's a reference to, you know, how the second record starts on that very last song. And then on this second record, that kind of callback, all callbacks to the first record. And then that, that kind of name drop for the next record. And now on the great American novel, there's kind of like hints about what the next record's going to be. So I kind of just like, I'm always plotting an album ahead as far as like the concept and the title goes. And so that one kind of came from the writing of the second record where I was like, man, that's a really nice, like a nice set of words. I should use it for something else. And I just kind of sat on it until I was like, oh yeah, that should be what the next record is and kind of filled in the blanks after the fact. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've read about your love for bands like, like Coheed and Cambria, who, yeah. <laughs> who I, I grew up with as well, who I, yeah. I, I also love. And it's, it's so funny. My wife and I, we made this giant driving, like emo driving playlist, just, just to kind of mm -hmm. like dredge up all the stuff that we listened to in high school. And, yeah. I, and I feel like, I feel like Coheed and My Chemical Romance are like the two bands that we agreed upon that like aged the best. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> of all those bands. But yeah, like I feel like those two bands, you know, really took narrative risks and really went for extravagant kind of yeah. narrative choices like that, that really mm -hmm. doesn't really happen in guitar based rock anymore. Yeah. Is, is that something that you really try and emulate with proper or? Absolutely. Yeah. Coheed, uh, My Chemical Romance, uh, Dance, Gavin Dance was a big one for me. Um, just like really just like, I didn't know you were allowed to do that kind of bands. Like yeah. Me Without You, Say Anything, obviously is a huge one. Um, narratively, like the Wonder Years, dance lyricism just keeps, it's not fair how, how, how much better he gets every year. And it's just like the want to, for one, push the boundaries in a guitar rock band, but also narratively try and write like a really good story has always been important to me. So yeah, Kohi for the instrumentals and Mike him for like the narratives, just the grand grandiose scale of all their albums narratively. I was just like, man, that's, I don't know if I can afford the costume budget that Mike him has, but like <laughs> just trying to just be like, man, Gerard really 
put everything into making this a, a big story and it paid off was really seminal for me as a young adult, even now. Yeah, even even like the, you know, just, you know, Gerard is, is like a comic book artist, you know, mm-hmm. the, the kind of, it's it's funny how like he and both Coheed, it, it seems like almost you need like those Star Wars, you know, remember those like Star <laughs> Wars novelizations that would come oh, out yeah. like, in between yeah. the movies? Like, I feel like you needed those for Coheed records. Almost. Yeah, yeah. It was just like such an event when Claudia was like, I'm going to start like making these in the comic books and short stories and stuff. And like having that second little like, oh, this makes the album even more whole when you have a book to hold in your hands and look through. Like it really, it's just really cool. Yeah. I mean, have you have you considered any of that outside of the band? Like, have you have you ever thought about maybe, you know, maybe taking the inverse of of TV writing to songwriting, maybe songwriting to TV writing in that regard? Absolutely, yeah. I've always seen myself as a writer that happened to pick up a guitar instead of a musician, and uh, I just notoriously don't have the best work ethic. Again, talking about how my bandmates have to beg me to write stuff. I just uh, I love the album when it's done, but the process is just never, after 19 years of playing guitar, it's just never been fun for me. I just, uh, I don't know why, but yeah, I always like tell myself like, all right, you clearly could write like a, a script or like a short story, so just do it. And then I just, uh, but then when it's time to do it, for whatever reason, I'm just like, ah, that's a lot though. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So one day I always tell myself I would love to write a book. I just, uh, I'm not there yet, you know. <laughs> yeah. But but I, you know, listening to a song like like Shuck and Jive where you know, as as someone who's who's played in bands and and kind of understands what happens on a DIY level in in some regard, like I I feel like that kind of frustration that bands mm-hmm. who just get routinely screwed over constantly yeah. like yeah. is is just waiting for the right person to kind of make the right tv show or right movie about it yeah and 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 that song i i feel like it's one of the few that kind of gets that i mean thank you my experiences aren't the same but of of course Mm -hmm. but like you know gets that frustration of yeah what what some people are talking about now with the yeah of you know south by southwest ripping bands off and 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 all that shit yeah it's like if you know you know yeah yeah and i and i always like gravitate towards like music movies and music television series and i would love something that's on our level of, of music and like where it's just like you know an indie emo band uh showing you what it's like to be that medium tier band mostly just so my parents get what i do but also because <laughs> they would just be great to see like a a band that's like a me without you level band like a story about that and not like like i love atlanta but i would love to see something where it's like two rungs below that you know um one day yeah, yeah. I I feel like I I feel like the rock documentaries that actually capture that are few and far between as well. Like I it's it's pretty rare when when you yeah. actually see what a real tour's like. Yeah, I would love to see one where it's like, yeah, our band like has followers, but I also have a day job. You know? <laughs> yeah. Cuz like touring for bands at our level is like, you know, we we open for bands where like while they're in the band, they're like doing their graphic design job for like a big, you know, agency and they're just like, yeah, like I do this during the day and then we play our set and then I, you know, and it's like, I would love to see that story where it's not just all in for music and you can see what it's like to actually be a part-timer to like, yeah, we have the following, but 
we lose money on tour every tour. So we all have jobs, but we still enjoy touring. So we still do it. Like that would be such a great television show. Yeah, it's 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 really funny. I, I've been thinking about this a, a lot. My wife and I, we were rewatching The Office and, nice. and we were noticing, at least I was noticing that anytime they talk about a character on that show having an artistic pursuit outside of The Office, like it's always mm-hmm. made fun of or like ridiculed. Yeah. Like like Kevin's in a wedding band that covers the police or yeah. or, or Pam like you yeah. know she's a she's a painter and Oh my and, god, that but, gallery episode is so good though. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's funny like I I feel like whenever it's depicted in culture like what you're saying of someone having like a part-time artistic pursuit, it's always like laughed at. Yeah. And, it, and it's not taken seriously. And, yeah, it's so odd like I don't know. I'm a firm believer that you don't have to monetize everything that you love, but also if you can get like a part-time check out of it, that should also be enough if you think that's enough. Because all that I ever hear is like, proper should be bigger. You, know, you should be doing more. Why are you slept on? And I was like, I didn't know I was slept on until people started saying that. Like, I'm, <laughs> I am so happy and so grateful with what where we are. Like we just went to Italy for the first time and, and played to a hundred people both nights. And it's just like, that doesn't feel like slept on. But like because of Spotify being the dominant thing, we're like your numbers and engagement matter the most now. People only see that. And then now it's just like, especially for my parents and my siblings, they're just like, I don't understand. Like you just did a headlining tour. Why, why are you broke? It's like, I, I don't know how to explain it to you without making it sound like it's terrible, but I love it. So I still do it, but it doesn't have to be more than that, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's such a distorted view yeah, it. I mean, for anything else, you know, like if you were asked, yeah. like if you were asked to speak, like if you were just working an office job and you were asked to speak at a conference in Italy where a mm-hmm. hundred people would be attending to hear what you have to say, you, you know, it, people might think about it differently, you know. Yeah, like it's. I I think just, I, like the value. I I guess what people view as valuable, in terms of art versus you know, actual, not, I shouldn't say actual because I'm doing it again. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just so ingrained, you know, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. It's, it's pretty insane, but yeah. anyways, um, <laughs> now I'm, I'm spiraling just thinking about all my mistakes in my life. <laughs> no, no, no. We could talk about this topic all day. It's all, it's on my mind all day, every day. Yeah. The more that you, especially like being a medium tier band and you see other bands like surpass you and it's just like, oh, that hunger now to catch up to them is there. But then you have to remind yourself, well, why? I'm doing great where I am. I don't need to try and compete anymore. I, in my mind, have made it. Why do I feel less than all these societal pressures to catch up to this other band? But it's just like, oh, good for them. That's great. And that should be the whole conversation. But I'm still just like, ah, oh, man, am I an actual like artist? Maybe I should be doing more. Not enough people. And then you get in your own head and it's a never ending. Ah, it's a whole thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's I, literally a spiral. Right, right. I, I think, yeah, just you know, the, the competition or, or the kind of capitalistic tendencies that have like snuck into art, you know, yeah. it's, it's just, it, it's really a surefire way to, uh, you know, totally hollow you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hollow you and hobble you. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about it? That was one of the things pre COVID last thing I'll say about it. Then we can move on. Sorry. One of the <laughs> things pre COVID was that I, 
had this mantra, uh, ABN, always be networking. And the reason Proper grew so quickly, so fast, is because I was going to like five shows a week and I was meeting that one band that knew that one person and I was meeting that one booking agent that like, it wasn't gonna sign us, but they would help us get some shows in Philly so we could meet this band and that person. And it's just like, it burns you out. And like lockdown forced us to sit down and be like, yo, can we just go back to having fun? And that's what we're doing now. And it's night and day how much different it is when you're like, we're having fun. And yes, also we get paid. <laughs> but like <laughs> now it's like, where I don't feel like I have to be, especially with the, all the COVID surges. Like I don't have to be always meeting someone. We can be like, hey, this is our fee. If you want us to play, that's what we're going to do. If not, we're not interested in haggling. We'll find the next guy that, that'll, you know, put us on the bill. And it's so much better now when you know your worth and you don't settle for less, but you also are just like get, getting constant work and being happy about it and not trying to get more than what you need. Where, where did that network, like, how did that networking shift during COVID? Did, I mean, were you more online? Were you just kind of, you know, reaching out to people that way? Um, yeah, more so that and just going to the shows that I want to go to. Because uh, it used to be like playing a game of chess where it's like, all right, this person uh, is in this band, but they also book for this uh, at this um, at this other venue. We really want to play there. Or they're really good friends with this band and we can like get in the room with them. So now it's just like, now I just shoot my shot. I'm just like, hey, I love your music. We'd love to play with y'all. Uh, let me know. As opposed to going through like, have my manager talk to your manager and all that. It's just so unnecessarily convoluted. So now it's just like, I'm online less, but I'm more intention. There's more intent behind who I interact with and what shows I go to and not just like trying to cast the widest net possible. Right. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about, we, we brought it up before, but the mm-hmm. song McConnell. Yeah, I, I think is so endlessly fascinating to me. Not not only because of thank you, not only because of the musical composition, which mm-hmm. harkens back to, you know, bands like System of a Down at, at points, yeah. and 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 it's just so pummeling and and brutal. But at the same time, you know, if you were just to take the musicality of it and know that it's about Mitch McConnell, yeah, you wouldn't expect the kind of empathy almost that that are in the lyrics towards him Mm -hmm. which i I find so fascinating you know just just the fact that you like you you could have any any opportunity and as you should to just say you know fuck you mitch mcconnell yeah but in it you kind of do your part to kind of tell the story tell his story in some regards or the kind of like i i guess show different levels of of humanity to him where yeah he could have done the right thing but actually but didn't and, yeah and i think that's so brilliant like, like the fact the fact that he you know attended dr king's speech but then voted against the the voting rights act yeah is is something that i'm sure a lot of people don't know about yeah it's um I don't know. I'm a firm believer that like, you know, no one's truly evil, no one's truly good. And that's every world is one big gray area. And I, at first I was going to go the fuck you, you're just a demon route. Uh, but then I was just like, you know what, like, uh, uh, let me do some more research to see how he got to here. Cause that's always the interesting part about a villain is how they become the villain. And then I was just like, he, he attended that speech. What? And it's just like bombshell after bombshell about, and then it became more about how does someone, get to this level what corrupts them and then how does your family feel about it so initially i wanted to add another verse to dive deeper into the family aspect but there's just not 
they're all pretty hush hush except for his i think his daughter one of his daughters and i was just like okay I, I, there's no way i can get this without like trying to reach out and cry and it's just fascinating how a person can start out so i don't want to say pure but well-intentioned and then just and, you know it's it's breaking back it's 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 those stories where it's just like i'm rooting for you and then five seasons later you're just like what happened like i watched you do all these things how did i end up here hoping that you fail and a, a bit of empathy always i think adds better storytelling a sympathetic villain is the best kind of villain all of those top rated villains of all time lists they're always people that you're just like i can see their motive but i don't agree with it or like their plan makes sense but the way they went about it is kind of fucked so that was my my plan for that and that i would like to think he could come around but the, but but the hard reality is that you know he's what he's got to be 80 by now right yeah i mean he's yeah he's 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 set in his ways and it's just like you know the the process hopefully is that people think like how does someone get from a to b when they were so clearly not destined for this path and that while he's an asshole now, I want to think more deeply about villainy and how someone becomes a villain. Well, it's it's funny because, you know, with that song and also Red, White, and Blue, you mm-hmm. you really kind of establish this narrative as as America as an abusive lover. Yes, yeah. which yeah. which you know is in the in those scenarios, you always hear about people kind of you know hoping for a, rede- a redemptive quality in that person but yeah. it just never happens until it's or or they keep hoping until it's too late i mean is, yeah was that was that something that you wanted to establish as well throughout the record um k- kind of yeah that's how americana that line about would i still be me if i was born anywhere else because like the things that make me so like eric are american things and it's really hard to wrestle with that because uh, I think I could be a better version of me if I hadn't spent 31 years being just beat down by this country. Yeah. But then it's like, oh, well, you know, a uh, butterfly effect. Maybe if it, maybe I, I could have been worse. Maybe I could just been like another just, just person who just thought it's not my problem and I'll just sit this one out. So it's kind of like, what do I do? Like Stockholm syndrome, but also like, I'm aware of my, the cage that I'm in and I eventually can figure out how to get out of it. But like, where will I go after 30 years of being in this cage, you know? So with red, white, and blue, it's definitely like more on the nose. Um, and then obviously with McConnell, it was kind of, I was trying to be the antithesis to Gene, the song right before it. And just trying to explore that through song run, like America, how its systems fail you. And then like, how did this person become a villain? And just like, the answer is that I don't know, <laughs> but like, I just want to talk about it, you know? Yeah. I, well, I, I think it's, it's, it's just a, you know, it's the story of just power corrupting over and over again. Yeah. This, the song Americana, I I think, you know, really wraps the album to wrap, wraps it up in such a great way. Thank and, you. and I love, I love the concept that you kind of explore on it where you talk about how, it's it's something that we kind of never really stop to realize sometimes is that, you know, this is just in a terrain sense that America is this beautiful place, you know, yeah. and, and that, you know, it's, it's just the shitheads that live here, 
you know, yeah. <laughs> ruin it for the rest of us. Yeah. And, and, uh, I mean, you talk about it at one point where you talk about how being so taken aback by the beauty of the country that you wanted to retrofit a bus to kind of just explore yeah, and, and kind of, you know, be away from it all and, and just live on your own terms. Mm-hmm. Did I imagine that had to come from somewhere. Was that, was that an idea that you had during the pandemic or was that, you know, something that had been, you know, you had been thinking for years. Yeah. For years, a little bit before the pandemic, I, uh, being a Redditor of 11 years, uh, you know, you find all these cool things on the internet. And I think the subreddit's called Band Dwellers. And it was just like on the front page one day of all. And I was just like, I'm sorry, what? This is a bus <laughs> that's better decorated than my home. And then like for the last four years, I've just been like slowly but surely like following more subreddits like that, following more Instagram accounts. And then I don't know, something about lockdown. I was just like, I'm going to do it. I can't, I can't be if the world's ending, I'm at least going to like end it in the woods in a beautiful van with the sunset. And then I saw how expensive it was. And I, and now I still live in an apartment, but it's been a thing that I've wanted to do for a long time. I still very much want to do it. I just can't see myself paying rent until I die. Um, which is sad because I love New York so much, but I just can't keep paying 2,400 plus dollars a month and ever climbing increments for the rest of my life. And it's just the thought of going back down South as an adult and seeing it for all the beauty that's actually there uh, just really sounds perfect. Um, It really took me going down there as an adult in this band and staying at at Elijah's place in El Paso, Texas and being like, man, this is beautiful. Like you grew up with this? And he's just like, yeah, man, yeah. Uh, sorry, Elijah, for my my poor impersonation of you. But um, yeah, and it just made me kind of retroactively look back at all the places I've lived, South Carolina, Mississippi, uh, Alaska, and being like, yeah, I don't think I had a fair chance to, to see those places as something beautiful. For one, as a kid in a military family, so I was on an Air Force base and with curfews or just like being the other person all of the time it just I didn't get a fair shake of it and I really want to get a second chance yeah I mean I I I kind of came to that realization I I lived in my wife and I we lived in Brooklyn for 12 years oh, and, nice. and we just moved to Philly you know for that reason we were just like yeah. we, we just need the space you yeah know? but but before living in the city we we had both like come from pretty rural areas like she grew up outside of rochester new york and i grew up okay you know by like vermont you know upstate new york but yes yeah, yeah. okay but we both like i think we were just so starved for action you know yeah. coming, <laughs> you know just being out in the woods that we were like new york is the only place we need to live you know Same. like you know we, we have to be there we have to you know actually be able to see these bands that we've only read about or listening yes. listen to Same. You know? yeah and, and uh and I think that the pandemic really did that for us. We were just like, mm-hmm. you know, why, you know, why are we paying to live in the city that's so closed off to us right now? Mm-hmm. And it could happen again. You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's the, that's the scary part is like, this could all happen again. Yeah. And I'm supposed to pretend like I want to pay rent and go into a job. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny though. And, and then like, yeah. And what you're saying, you know, retrofitting a bus, that's probably the size of a two bedroom apartment in New York mm-hmm. is pretty, yeah. you know, it's pretty ideal. Yeah. No, um, it's definitely, 
sorry, one more thing about it, because I feel that so hard coming from a smaller town and being like, man, I really am sick of reading about these bands. I want to just be able to walk down the street and see them. That's the literal reason I'm in New York right now. The reason that proper is a thing, because I was just like reading about all these bands. When I lived in Alaska, I was 16, too young to go see them. When I lived in Missouri, I just, they were just too far away from me. They play St. Louis and I was five hours away. And it's just like, that's why I'm in New York now is for that exact reason, because that opportunity. But now I'm at that cross point where I'm like, I pay so much and I can live anywhere else now, now that I'm 30 plus and I have my shit together and I could just drive that two hours to see this band. Do I want to stay in New York? Do I want to, it's again, I could spiral out about it. It's, it's insane. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally relate. I, I remember, I remember being a kid and my friend Matt and I, we were reading, we both, we both got Rolling Stone and we were reading about a show that at the drive-in played. Uh, and and we we're yeah. and we were both just like my friend Matt was like I talked to my mom and the next time at the drive-in plays anywhere close to us like if they play in New York or something mm-hmm. she'll drive us three and a half hours to go see them <laughs> but like, nice but I remember I remember having that just yeah that that kind of desire to just be to have that like movie quality you know just <laughs> aspect to my life that just wasn't yeah there, you know yeah yeah i feel that hard <laughs> yeah so uh where, where do you work uh, i actually do AR at the label that played out our first album um just like part-time now i do the music thing part-time but my main like money maker thing is that i'm a lab rat for big pharma so oh, no. cool yeah because <laughs> i i i used to be a cook I went to a little culinary Voltec, Voltec school, all that, got a certificate, started working at like 15 uh, with a bunch of people that were like in their 30s and 40s. And I burnt out of the kitchens by like 23. So I just started like all those ads where it's like, do you want to make $2,000 by just sitting in bed and testing a drug? And I was like, yes. So I've been doing <laughs> that for the last 10 years because I just can't. Offices aren't for me. Talking to other people every single day is not for me. So <laughs> I've, I uh, I like to say I'm just uh, a self-employed kind of gig worker, but that's my main type of job that I've been doing for the last 10 years now. Oh, right on. That, that I mean, that's awesome. I mean, that's, I mean, going back to what we've been talking about, I, I, I feel like that idea that you have to either be in an office, you know, that, that you have to have these strict nine to five rules around your yeah. life or, mm-hmm. or, you know there's a sense of failure is is something that's so ingrained and so hard to shake yeah yeah it's i don't know i could be like you know i could be a cook in the best restaurant in town but like working 70 hours a week what am i going to do in my free time like i'm going to go home watch the episodes of tv till i fall asleep and then do it again yeah and and it's just like that never really jived with me especially my parents being in the military they were just like really disappointed i didn't go to college and they were even more disappointed when I didn't follow through with food. And it's just like, I'm so much happier now, but I'm not like a success in the standard eyes. But it's like, I, I can go and do my my little gigs, be there for like six days and then not have to work for three weeks. And I think that that's perfect. I, yeah, yeah. I, I my, my time is my own. And I think that that's, that should be the standard. But it's still like a thing that I'm trying to convince my parents where it's just like, yeah, I'm very happy. This isn't a thing that's going to change. I'm going to keep doing this career path until I damn well please. And that I think that's the American dream is that I have found a, th- a schedule that works for me and I can thrive and it's not in a cubicle. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It just doesn't work for me. 
Yeah, I mean, well, did working in in kitchens kind of help to break that down for you? Like, did it kind of break down, like, the idea of having a traditional, you know, kind of suit and tie kind of job? Yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I notoriously hated school all throughout school. Uh, I I hated high school so much, I don't have a yearbook picture my senior year. I didn't walk. I was like, okay, I'm done. Goodbye. Um, just so the thought of paying to go to college and do that all over again never sounded fun. The thought of paying off student loans for 30 plus years never sounded fun. And then at a job that was just like, I went all this time in college. And what do you mean that I don't have any real world experience? I did the college. It just never sounded fun to me. So the, the kitchen jobs definitely like showed me for one that I was not made to work 70 hours a week doing clopens. I don't know if you know, you, if you know what that is. No, no, clop- no. So a clopen in the kitchen world is you you close the restaurant and then you show up about six hours later to open the restaurant. Oh. And it's just like, I just, at, at 20, I was just like, this can't be all there is to life. I can't. I'm just, I'm, I'm greased up. My, my diet is terrible. I, I have no time for friends. I have no time for my partner. I have no time to take care of myself. And you want me to do this for 50 more years? So I kind of like made my exit strategy very early, but the kitchen was just like, I love cooking, but it like, it took the fun out of it. The same thing where I was talking about where in lockdown, we made our music fun again. I had to find that, like I didn't cook for two years because I was just so burnt out. And now I cook when I want because it's fun. And I have little like on my Instagram story, little like uh, quarantine, quarantine restaurant or recipes is what I call them. And I just like make fun little videos and I don't have to monetize it. And it's just fun. So that really showed me that while I love cooking uh, and I love music and I love all these things, I don't, I'm not going to break my back for them. Right. What, I mean, was, was there a specific moment that you remember, I, I guess maybe working in a kitchen, maybe doing something else where it was kind of an aha thing where you um, realized that you had to take your music seriously and, and really put your all into it? I think it was just like a bunch of little moments. Like when I would be like, I, I was, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I'm really good in a kitchen. So I, in Mississippi, I was in the best restaurant in town, in Columbus, Mississippi. And I would be, I would do everything. I would be a line cook. I would be a dishwasher. I would be a waiter. I'd be a server. And I kind of noticed it whenever I was upstairs, the kitchen was in the basement. I would wait tables and like, it would be, it was a place where a steak was $60. And this was 15 years ago. Right. And they, and my tip would be 10 bucks. But like the, the white women that would be serving next to me would be getting $100 tips and $200 tips. And I kind of noticed like, okay, Systemic racism is a thing, even in fine dining. And then, so I kind of quit that. And then I did, worked at like a, uh, a bowling alley, just doing burgers and fries. And then, but all the people that came there were military people. So they would be like, you know, make my food boy type mentality. Like, all right, I can't, can't really escape that. So then I found like a middle of the road Italian place. And it was just like, the guy was just like a slave driver expecting you to break your back for him, but he would pay you nothing. And you would have to pay for your food still, even though I'd be there for 11 straight hours. So a bunch of little things where I was just like, I don't think I like this. And I think I'm a socialist and like all at once in my early twenties. <laughs> so there's never one big moment, but um, I definitely moved to New York to pursue music full time. Cause at that, you know, at 23, before I moved here, I thought that I was an outgoing person that wanted to be a musician on stages, which turns out now is not true. Uh, I, I just want to play music with my friends sometimes. And that's kind of where I am now. Uh, my parents never instilled in me that in me that I could like score a video game or I could, you know, 
do some soundtracking for a TV show. It had to be like, be on stage just playing for a thousand people or nothing. So now I'm kind of in that moment now where I'm like, where do I find a healthy medium? Because I don't like touring all the time. And I don't like sitting at the merch table talking to a line of people that want to take my picture. And I feel very awkward. And I'm just like, you idolize me, but I'm a shithead. Why, why would you do that? <laughs> um, the long-winded way to say that there wasn't one moment and I'm still learning in through little moments what I want to do fully. Right. And and you kind of talk about that in Shuck and Jive. I, I think it's mm. Shuck and Jive, right? Where you you kind of say like, like, well, what else are you going to do? Are you like, you could either sign the dotted yeah. line or what else are you going to do? Like go back. Yeah, to, yeah. Yeah. Stocking shelves. And yeah. And it's really weird being 31 now. Uh, I'm 31. Elijah's 30. Tasha's 39. And it's just such a different dynamic being in a band that's making it. Because at 20, you're just like, yeah, I want to be a rock star. But at 30, I'm just like, I'd like to pay some of my bills and uh, (laughs) I would like to do like a two week run and then be home for three straight months. (laughs) So it's like, it's so weird figuring it out now. Well, it must, it must be good. I I, I guess it must be good in a sense because you kind of understand now as, you know, being 31, you probably understand the scope and kind of, you know, the things you won't do in music. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) The things I won't do now are like hard to find. And it's like, I don't know, that my, my main job now is just dispelling all the rock star rumors that everyone, or thoughts that everyone has, my, my family and my, and my more normie friends. It's like, no, like the show ends and then I go back to where we're staying and I go to sleep. Uh, we're <laughs> not partying, uh, we're not doing coke, I'm not trying to sleep with the next person I see. It's, uh, it just doesn't work that way for a band when you're this age. It was never really the goal. And now we're definitely not trying to do any wild shit. We want to play the show and we really want to beat up in, in bed by midnight. Now is the goal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It probably mirrors like, like the same experiences of like a 31 year old actually going to a show, you know, probably be, <laughs> you, know, probably, you know, probably being like, Oh, hope this is over before 11 like exactly exactly (laughs) so so what else you got going on today uh i've got a few more interviews after this and then uh my partner's on her way home from work now and i think we're just gonna make something fun i've been marinating some chicken for the last 24 hours and we're gonna we're gonna we have a grill on our roof we're just scoping i sound so old oh my god Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm literally doing the same thing. I'm, I'm about okay. to go grill some chicken. <laughs> exactly. Like, we're just going to grill. Um, this new bar opened up down the street that has, like, it's called Beer Wax, and they have, like, they play oh, yeah. records. Oh, so so you live on, like, Vanderbilt? Like, over? Uh, over so now there's a Queens location oh, that okay. just opened. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm off Myrtle Wyckoff L, and oh. it's literally a block away just opened. But, yeah, so I'm just going to be an old man. I'm going to try a new beer, and I'm going to grill on my roof, and that's it. Maybe watch some Atlanta or some Barry. And that's that. That's the plan for the day. <laughs> nice. Well, well, thanks so much for talking. This this was a lot of fun, and and congrats on the record. Um, I'm, thank you. I'm excited. I'm I'm gonna try and come out to the Philly show when when you come through with Los Campesinos. Hell yeah, yeah, yeah. I can uh, I can guest list you. Uh, just shoot me an email and remind me, and I'll I'll put you on the guest list for sure. All right, good talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. All right, take care. Take care.